Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Larry Kudlow Show. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you this weekend. It's uh, not a fabulous weekend for world news with uh, war raging in the Middle East, Israel uh, massing at the borders of Gaza, ready to go in with their much-anticipated ground assault. And there's unrest throughout the Middle East. The Middle East is basically blown up under Joe Biden. It is basically blown up under Joe Biden. By the way, uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about this today with uh, various experts, but um, it's worth noting not only the barbaric invasion of Israel by Hamas, of course, Iran is the puppeteer, the financier, the master planner, the potential for two fronts, one in the north with Lebanon and Hezbollah, one in the south with Hamas in Gaza. But also it's worth noting that um, uh, various Iran-backed terrorist groups are taking pot shots, firing missiles, cruise missiles, at American warships and American warships uh, stationed in the Straits of Hormuz, stationed in the Mediterranean. Uh, They're knocking them out. The U.S. is knocking them out, but nobody's really talked much about that. And I don't know Joe Biden wants to declare war against against, uh, Iran or not. We'll talk about that with some of our experts coming up. By the way, you can get us live streaming here on the radio. You can live stream us. Uh, on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. You can get us during the week, Fox Business. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't get us at 4, there's a replay at 7, or you can DVR the show. Just get your favorite 9-year-old to text you and show you how to DVR the show. Um, I want to make a couple comments at the top about uh, Joe Biden's speech Thursday night. You know, I will commend Biden. I'm not a supporter of his, as you folks know. I will commend Biden, though, for his support of Israel. At least so far, his speeches uh, in Israel, before he went to Israel this past week, Thursday night, I will commend him. And he is asking for money to replenish the Iron Dome and provide other military and munitions, various munitions, uh, weaponry. This is good. Strong support of Israel. Very, very important. In Israel... Biden's a pretty popular guy, reading about it in the Wall Street Journal. It's a good story about that. But I was 
not happy with Biden's coupling of Ukraine and Israel. I mean, I thought if he had stayed on Israel in his speech, it would have been a real spectacular speech. Uh, but he didn't. And he makes this point how we got to have, we got to keep helping Ukraine. And by the way, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not defending uh, Vladimir Putin. I, I, I think Putin's brutal incursion into Ukraine is a terrible thing. I completely oppose it on all grounds. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. But when Biden says that um, in both cases uh, the attackers, Hamas and Putin, want to annihilate Ukraine and Israel, that's just not true. I mean, the issue in Ukraine is an issue of statehood and sovereignty. Putin does not wish to annihilate Ukraine, as bad as that story is. He basically wants to just take it over, reincorporate it into the Russian Empire. Whereas Hamas wants to annihilate Israel, destroy Israel, send them out into the sea. In fact, Hamas's whole reason for being, and which Biden says, Biden is correct on this. He makes it very clear. Uh, that he understands the whole reason for Hamas is to destroy Israel. But Israel is fighting for its very existence. And indeed, Iran would like to destroy Israel, and Iran would like to destroy the United States. But Putin wants to just take over Ukraine, add it to his empire. So they're very different. And with respect to uh, financing the Ukraine war, again, I, I don't want to pull the plug on Ukraine financing, but I do feel that in Congress, in the debate, they should be debating Ukraine separately from the debate regarding Israel. There won't be any debate regarding Israel, except for some crazy people on the far left, uh, Tlaib and some of the quartet crowd, a bunch of nutcases. There will be almost unanimous support for Israel. There will not be unanimous support for Ukraine. I reckon there will be a lot of support to help Taiwan. And the other piece of the funding, $106 billion funding, with respect to the U.S. southern border, I don't know what they're doing there. Uh, That is not, by the way, to close the border. That is to expedite people coming across, which is very bad. And that needs to be debated separately. So I don't like this one-size-fits-all. I don't like this one package. All of these issues should be debated separately. So that was my biggest problem with Biden in that speech. Again, good on Israel, but we have to debate Ukraine, whether there's an exit strategy, whether there's diplomatic initiatives, whether there's potential for some kind of ceasefire, peace discussions, all these things have not been discussed and they need to be discussed because the Ukrainian situation is different than the Israeli situation. The United States has to pledge itself unambiguously, virtually without limits, to the support of Israel. I can't say the same about Ukraine. We also have to make sure we're dealing with Taiwan, but we need a full public discussion of United States efforts with respect to Taiwan to stop our enemy, China. And the southern border is a catastrophe. There are stories, folks, how people from 
Central and South America coming across the border are now a minority of people coming across the border. Whatever the number in total since Biden has come in, 5 million, 6 million, the reality is they're coming from all around the world and they're coming from a lot of terrorist countries. You know, Donald Trump closed that off years ago. Now it's a wide open border and that, that really requires its own discussion quite apart from Israel and quite apart from Ukraine. And what Biden is doing is lumping everything into one package. This is bad policy. It creates moral ambiguities and it creates military ambiguities. So I don't like this one bit. Now on the Israeli war, and again, the troops are massing, they have not formally... They have not yet formally come in, although Israeli commandos have been in, and of course the precision air bombing has been unbelievable. Good for Israel. God bless Israel across the board. But here the issue is Iran. We, the United States government, under Biden, as was the case under Obama, has been appeasing Iran. We will have the distinguished historian and foreign policy professor, Walter Russell Mead, will be here at the half hour, and we will spend a half hour talking to Professor Mead about the Iranian problem. But the Bidens have appeased and coddled Iran. They have given up on any of the sanctions. They still want to make a deal, some kind of nuclear deal with Iran, which would provide even more financial assistance. They have permitted Iran not simply to produce more oil, but to sell the oil predominantly to our enemy in China and elsewhere. The United States is not blocking shipping They're not blocking uh, airplane overland airplane. They're not blocking business. They're not enforcing the sanctions. So Israel has built up quite an impressive financial war chest. You know, in round numbers, maybe from three, four billion dollars of foreign exchange reserves three years ago, now up to perhaps 70 billion dollars. Oil revenues, which are virtually flat. I mean, they were producing a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day when Trump left office. Now they're up to three and a half to four million barrels a day. Again, most of the sales are to China. There's probably 50, 60, 70 billion dollars worth of oil revenues. This has made Iran stronger. This has given Iran more money to finance Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad and Houthis, and all the other terrorist groups that Iran is uh, financing. And um, we haven't done anything with it. I mean, it's no surprise. Give them the money, and the Iranians will spread it around. And they're the master plotters, they're the puppeteers, as well as the financiers. This barbaric Hamas invasion was two years in the making, and Iran was part of this 
every step of the way from what we can gather from the existing evidence and intelligence reports. It's a very bad story. And Mr. Biden did not address that in his speech. That was his second mistake. Not only the moral equivalence between Ukraine and Israel, which was his first mistake, but he refused to address Iran. He says at one point, we'll continue to hold them accountable, comma, I might add, period, end quote. I might add? What's he talking? I mean, this should have been first and foremost. And still, still, throughout this Israeli crisis now, even with his support of Israel, we still have not cracked down on Iran. We are not stopping their shipping. We are not stopping their oil sales. By the way, we're not doing much. You know, Iran, Iran and Iranian back groups firing on American ships, as I said earlier. We're not doing a thing about it. By the way, there are 30-some-odd dead Americans and another 10 to 15 American hostages, and Biden is not focused on that. This is a direct insult to the United States. You think Reagan wouldn't have made a fuss about 32 Americans killed by Hamas or 10 or 15 taken hostage? You think Donald Trump wouldn't have made a fuss about the same thing? Biden hardly talks about it. He mentions it in passing as a statistic, but he does not put any military or foreign policy or moral force behind it. We can't let this happen. We cannot let this happen. The hostage issue is a vexing issue. There's no question about that. The Israeli hostages, the American hostages. But these were places where Biden, Biden's speech to the nation Thursday night was sorely lacking. He's not tough enough. He is not tough enough. Weakness breeds weakness. Weakness breeds weakness around the world, for sure, in the Middle East with great certainty. We had peace in the Middle East under Donald Trump. We have had a blowout, a military and terrorist blowout and blow-up in the Middle East and elsewhere around the world under Joe Biden. Peace through strength, I would say right now it is weakness. Mr. Biden didn't look good. His words were slurred. This was problematic also. But most of all, most of all, at least now, we can say, hopefully, that Biden is backing Israel. Now the question is, will he interfere? Will he interfere with the Israeli Defense Forces as they make their move to annihilate Hamas, which is order number one. We'll talk some more about that as the show continues. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are, of course, talking about the war, but I'm going to get a sidebar. Uh, my pals in uh, the Republican 
Congress, House of Representatives, are not doing well. Um, they can't seem to get themselves a speaker. And you need a speaker in order to call the House into session and to move on with the business of the House. The business of the House, among other things, is supplying some supplemental funding to Israel, our greatest ally, the only democracy in the Middle East. So it's all a big disappointment. My friend Jim Jordan's candidacy went down. My friend Steve Scalise's candidacy went down before that, and before that, my friend Kevin McCarthy's candidacy went down. And um, Mr. Matt Gates, who has been singled out correctly, I mean, they unleashed the torrent here by going after McCarthy. I, I don't understand it. I still don't understand it. Uh, I don't need to sit around and rail against Gates. I don't understand the guy. I don't know the man, so I'll leave it at that. But I think the whole thing's a big mistake. Now, the question is picking up the pieces. They've got to get moving. I mean, look, in addition to supplemental funding for Israel and other foreign aid, they've got to pass a budget. I think it would be better to not shut the government down again. They're going to have to, I don't know whether it's going to be a continuing resolution, but the budget work has to be done committee by committee. Regular budget order. I do not want one gigantic omnibus bill, just like I don't want one gigantic omnibus foreign aid supplement. As I said earlier, Ukraine has to be looked at on its own merits. Israel, separate conversations on Ukraine, on Israel, and Taiwan, and the southern border. All that has to be done. And, of course, the investigations of the Biden scandals. And uh, Mr. Comer's committee has found I had Marjorie Taylor Greene on the show last night. I mean, they've got a $200,000 check that was washed through some fund by James Biden, the brother, and then the money went right to Joe Biden. I don't know enough about that. You've got Iranian cutouts and spies in the U.S. government. We don't know enough about that. That has to run through the oversight committees and the judiciary committees and the Ways and Means committees. We need tax policy to foster better economic growth and lower inflation. It's just a lot of work that needs to be done. The GOP doesn't look great right now. They can recoup. I mean, people won't necessarily remember this a year from now, but they've got to get the job done. I don't know who the right guy is. There are going to have to be compromises along the way. It is a conservative Congress, but it lacks a speaker. We'll take a break here. Walter Russell Meade writing brilliant things about Israel and Iran and some Biden failures coming up next. Please stick around. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It is with great pleasure that we bring in Walter Russell Mead, Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College, Hudson Institute Distinguished Fellow, and Wall Street Journal Global View columnist. Walter, welcome back. Uh, you, We haven't heard from you in a while, but you are writing up a storm. You are writing fabulous pieces. And I'm quoting you on a nightly basis at my TV show. Well, thank you, Larry. That's great to hear. No, you're doing the Lord's work. Walter, let's, um, the two pieces here that 
most recent, a world without American deterrence and appeasing Iran has failed. Um, Biden's speech uh, Thursday night, again, I didn't, I mean, I thought he was backing Israel, which is great, uh, but he didn't have much to say about Iran, only mentioned it twice. And I'm fearful, Walter, that old habits die hard and nothing is changing with respect to Iran. And I wanted to get your update on that after the speech. Yeah, I mean, look, the positive thing, it seems to me, in the speech is that the president is at least recognizing that the crises around the world are connected. You know, that the trouble that Russia being on the march, that the terrorists in the Middle East being on the march, there's a they're they're not just random things bizarrely happening by coincidence. I'm not sure that he's yet figured out that that his own administration's inability to deter people from doing bad things is the cause. And as you say, we still seem to be locked into this thing of of not fighting, not taking this not looking directly at the problem, which is Iran in the Middle East. It's really not the Palestinians, it's Iran. Mm. Yes, I mean, you're right. <clears throat> Mr. Biden has yet to grapple with the painful truth that America's core problem in the Middle East is the march of an unappeasable Iran toward regional power, regardless of moral or human cost. I mean, that uh, says it pretty well, and I want to read... The earlier piece that you wrote on October 16th, Iran is unappeasable, but this truth is too inconvenient for the Biden administration to admit. And they continue, the administration spokesman continue to minimize Tehran's involvement with and responsibility for the murders. The murders meaning, uh, I presume, the Hamas murders of Israel. I mean, you know, can we just, let's step back, Walter. There, there was a sanctions regime. Um, I'm going to say that the Trump administration uh, executed that sanctions regime, and it just seems like the Bidens have not, and I think that's provided a lot of funding and money for Iran. I don't know where you are on that, but that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think for the Biden administration, as for the Obama administration, the worst thing that could happen in the Middle East, in their thinking, is not an Iranian takeover of the region, but a U.S.-Iran war. And so they are basically, the, the thing that holds all their policies together is it's an effort to somehow get some kind of arrangement with Iran that will let the U.S. walk away from the region. And it's just not possible because Iran doesn't want anything short of full control, something that, frankly, would likely mean the end of the Jewish state. Yes, and, you know, in Biden's speech Thursday night, he had this paragraph about, you know, integrating all these countries uh, into some kind of peace and prosperity in the Middle East, and he, he has this dream about a railroad extending around half the world. Uh Iran doesn't want to be integrated, do they? I mean, their mission is complete. The, the other Arab countries negotiating the Abraham Accords and hovering around that, yes, they, I think, would like to see some kind of integrated peace and prosperity. But Iran's a criminal. Right. Well, Iran's vision of 
of uh, integration in the Middle East is the Iranian conquest of the mm. Middle East. Uh, yes. uh, and, and under those circumstances, they'd be happy to integrate. Uh, they're not willing to accept a kind of a secondary role in, a, in an integrated Middle East where the Israelis, the Saudis, the Turks and others, you know, have full, fair voice in what's happening. The Iranians want to control the whole thing. And they think they think they're on the way. Well, what are the what are the uh, painful, inconvenient facts here? I mean, I look at it, uh, Walter, as an economist. You know, I look at the numbers: more oil production, more oil sales, more foreign exchange reserves, more trade with China, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which has you know made Iran. Uh, flush yep. with cash. I mean, that's the way I look at it, but there may be other elements to it. Well, there, there's the fact, too, that over the decades, they've built up, you know, Hezbollah was once a very small force. They've turned it into a very formidable fighting force. Essentially, Iran is now the strongest force in Iraq. It is, hmm. uh, with that, it is holding up the government of Syria. It dominates Lebanon. The Houthi rebels in Yemen are Iranian proxies. So what we've seen is is Iran has been steadily increasing its power and its reach in the Middle East. Uh, and yes, the the money that uh, the the reducing sanctions puts in its pocket helps with this. Again, for the for the Iranians, um, the the real truth here is that. They think they understand that the Biden administration would almost always rather back down than stand up to them. And with that psychological edge, they just keep pushing the envelope, pushing further and further and further. And as our allies see that, they begin to think their only option might be to make some kind of a deal with Iran. Hmm. Well, Iran is right. I mean... How can the Bidens not see this, Walter? That's, I mean, it's there, they're facts. You have this blow up, you have this war. Um, and yet, unlike Jimmy Carter 45 years ago, some such, the Bidens don't seem to want to change their policy. You know, I think. I think there's several reasons, but, but one of them I think would have to do with the influence of, uh, Qatar and its diplomacy. Um, uh, and also there, there, there've always been a group of people around both the Obama and the Biden administration who I think quite sincerely believe that there are moderates in Iran and that somehow if the U.S. wouldn't confront Iran. The moderates would gradually be able to take over from the hardliners. And so, you know, the hope was always that by by easing the path, that Iran would ultimately prefer to live with the United States rather than confront it. I just don't think that's how they think. And that I know I know that argument um I mean, when I served in the Trump administration, I remember I was a member of the National Security Council. I heard that argument sometimes. But isn't that a rather frayed, hackneyed argument at this point? Look, it seems to me at some point you have to take no for an answer. <laughs> yes. and, yeah. 
And, you know, look, we're a democratic country, and and I, the last thing I want, frankly, is some kind of conflict involving Americans anywhere in the world, including the Middle East. But there comes a time when you've tried all the ways you can think of to make peace. Uh, and then you've got to think, I would say in this case, not war, but be willing to back your allies if they take on Iran. Right now, we're trying to push the Israelis to uh, basically just striking Hamas in Gaza as a result of these murders. Something has to happen there, of course. But, but the real author of these atrocities is in Tehran. Mm. And... And the thing is that for, when Israel attacks Gaza, it divides all of our allies in the Middle East because the Arabs look at pictures of little children being bombed as Israeli warplanes strike Gaza, and it re- reignites the, their support for the Palestinians. It divides our friends. But, go, but the Arabs don't like Iran. They don't like Hezbollah. They don't like Assad. So if we, you know, it would unite people behind, it would, it would strengthen our alliances if Israel and Arab countries who care about it were, were addressing the real problem. But that's you know, just, apparently that's not what the Biden people want to do. Yes, apparently not. Um, I mean, I thought, Walter, the... Abraham Accords, and I know Saudis didn't sign, but we had a lot of communication with them, and it was what I would call positive communication. But the, I felt the Abraham Accords moved the center of political gravity in the Middle East uh, away from Iran and its you know, mischief-making and kind of surrounded Iran. And, of course, I think the sanctions... Were, you know, sanctions don't work 100%, but the sanctions work pretty well. It seems to me that's all changed now uh, with this latest Israel blowout. I'm afraid uh, we've re-empowered Iran, and we, don't, and we will not like what a re-empowered Iran does. Yes, re-empowered. That's a great word. That's, that's, it. that's the way. I mean, it's, it's really kind of a heartbreaker in a way. I mean, you had a lot of... You had a lot of um, a lot of progress, Walter Russell Mead. Um, Walter, let's take a break. Uh, uh, if, if you can spare us another ten or twelve minutes, I'd like to talk about the rest of the world, uh, how all these events and appeasement and the lack of deterrence. I'd like to talk about Russia and China as well, if you wouldn't mind, uh, folks. Sure. We're talking. Yeah, you're very kind with your time on a Saturday. We're talking to Walter Russell Mead. He's a Hudson Institute Distinguished Fellow. He's a professor of foreign affairs at Bard College. I once went up to Bard College to speak at a group at Walter's. Walter, you remember that? That was 2016, I think. That was a long time ago. That was. That was. <laughs> you gave a pro-Trump talk on a, on a very liberal college campus and lived to tell the tale. Well, actually, they were very polite, that group. I, I remember it. They were very polite. Anyway, yeah, Walter. Bard actually believes in free speech. It's a very yeah. unusual college. <laughs> Good work. And um, Professor Mead is also the Wall Street Journal Global View columnist, just writing up a storm with some wonderful pieces. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Please stay. Larry Cudlow. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with uh, Walter Russell Mead, Hudson Institute Distinguished Fellow, Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College and Wall Street Journal Global View columnist, writing up some great things. Walter, on your uh, piece, A World Without American Deterrence, going around the world. Um, Of course, this past week, uh, Putin met with Xi. Uh, Russia and North Korea have a flourishing trade, you're writing. And, of course, you say more ominously, China's pressure on Taiwan continues to grow. And all these things you say, why are so many actors challenging American power in so many parts of the world? Because the U.S. is losing its power to deter can you um, expand on that? Well, sure. Um, you know, during the Cold War, our whole NATO strategy was to say to the Soviet Union, you got to stop where you are. You know, you can't go into, you, you've got Poland and East Germany, you can't attack West Germany, can't attack the city of Berlin. And our nuclear deterrent and the uh, presence of our troops was all about preventing them from expanding their empire. The trouble is now you look at, say, Vladimir Putin and President Biden said, don't invade Ukraine. Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, we and he got away with it. He got, uh, he got away with it in 2014 with Obama. And while it's a very ugly war now, I think Putin still feels he's gonna, he has, he's on a, on a path to some kind of victory in Ukraine today. So we're saying to China, don't attack Taiwan. Uh, will they also at some point say, we just don't care what you say. We think we can do it and we're going to give it a try. Obviously, what we've seen in the Middle East is very much related to a failure Uh, of deterrence. Um, And the trouble is, again, that it started small back in 2008 when George W. Bush was president. Putin attacked Georgia, did not get effective pushback. 2014, he attacks um, Ukraine. Then you see China builds these little islands in the South China Sea. We said, don't do that. That's wrong. And uh, they said, oh, don't worry, we're not going to militarize them. We basically don't do much. And then they militarize them. They put air, you know, uh, landing uh, uh, airports on them and, and set them up as facilities. So we are we simply are letting these people kind of creep ahead. And each time they see they're like birds, you know, watching a, a scarecrow. And at first they're scared of the scarecrow, but then they notice, I just peck a little grain here and the scarecrow doesn't move. After a while, the birds lose their fear and they, and they fly right into the cornfield. Hmm. What should we do? What should have been done? You know, we talk about red lines, but we don't implement red lines, do we? Well, that was, you know, President Obama thought that it was a great, great historic moment when he, instead of enforcing the red line on Syria about chemical warfare, he actually let Russia be the one to manage everything. He ha- he helped turn Syria over to Putin and thought to himself, I'm doing something brilliant. I'm doing something historic. I'm smarter than those stupid other people. It was a mistake. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, people, you know, this doesn't mean, by the way, that, you know, the answer to everything is a bomb or an invasion. Um, because deterrence is also about people think you're, you're intelligent in the way you use, don't use force, the way you design your policies. So deterrence is, I say it's, it's respect for your power, for your will, and for your wisdom. And I would say on all three lines, we have been, we, we've been kind of in decline, mm-hmm. and the folks out there are watching. Have you thought much about the Taiwanese threat from from China? I mean, if if they invade China, uh, Taiwan, what happens? What do we have to do? Well, it, listen, I think the first thing that people don't understand about this, I visited Taiwan uh, last last year, and I'm just back from a trip to Pearl our base at Pearl Harbor, and then on to Japan and South Korea to look and see what's going on out there. And um, one thing is people don't understand, and, you know, in, in your world of financial markets, Larry, an invasion of Taiwan would be so much bigger than the war in Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, a huge percentage of world shipping goes through the Straits of, Strait of Taiwan and the South China Sea. If that becomes a military zone, uh, countries like, South Korea and Japan won't be able to import the fuel. China will be largely cut off from the world economy. Um, you'll see incredible disruptions in supply chains. You will see gyrations in financial markets like we haven't seen since the World War II and the Great Depression. This is a this is really a big deal. And in that zone. Uh I mean, Japan doesn't much like China. India doesn't look much like China. South Korea doesn't much like China. You think they would help us? Would they fight back? Well, I think, you know, they are waking up. Japan is the, is, is the most awoke. The South Koreans, of course, have got two problems because if China attacked Taiwan, that cuts them off by sea. It also means that, that we are focused on China, but the South Koreans have North Korea sitting right on top of them. And they're worried that the North Koreans, as well they might, would take advantage uh, and take an opportunity to attack from the North. Of course, so uh, uh, it, it's, it's a huge mess out there. I was just going to say Taiwan being one of the uh, semiconductor capitals of the world, very, very important. Um, that's right. That's right. It would, I mean, the, you know, again, the dis, but the disruptions go well beyond that. But absolutely, our, you know, the semiconductors are, you know, are to, are to our economy what sort of coal and steel were to the industrial age. Hmm. And we lose these cutting-edge uh, facilities in Taiwan, either because they're destroyed or there's a war or the Chinese capture them. Uh, we're in big trouble. And, Walter, in the last minute, um can you tell us how strong is North Korea? You mentioned in your piece that uh, Russia and North Korea trade is flourishing. How strong is North Korea? Well, North Korea can't feed its own people, but it can build nuclear weapons, and it's been building more and better ones. 
and it has better delivery capabilities than ever before. So North Korea is a completely militarized state, mm. and its ties with Russia are now growing. We can, for a long time, we had, you know, the UN had sanctions on North Korea. These days, neither Russia nor China seems to care very much about those sanctions. Walter Russell Mead from the Hudson Institute, Bard College, Wall Street Journal. Thank you, Walter. Look forward to talking some more. Folks, we'll take a break. On the other side of the break, Senator Kevin Kramer is going to talk about sanctions and Venezuela. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We continue our breaking news coverage of the war in the Middle East. And we bring in uh, my great friend, Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota. Senator Kramer, thank you, sir. As always, we appreciate your time. You know, um... Almost lost in the uh, news, explosive news and information, was the story that the Biden administration is lifting sanctions on Venezuela. They're lifting oil Mm -hmm. and gas sanctions on Venezuela because they think Maduro uh, is going to hold free elections? Really? I didn't know if you followed this one, but (laughs) what? Well, let me let me even put it in a in a weirder context, if, if you could get weirder. So on Wednesday of this this week that we're in, just a few days ago, um, Janet Yellen and the you know, Treasury Department announced that the um, that they were going to sanction eleven individuals, eight entities, and one vessel based on Iran, Hong Kong, based in Iran and Hong Kong, and and the People's Republic of China and Venezuela. Okay, so. So here they've named an entity in Venezuela, along with Hong Kong, China, and Iran, for further for sanctions. All these very narrow. They're, they, they were, they're based on Iran's ballistic missile and, and, and UAV programs. That was Wednesday. Thursday, Thursday, um, they they free up more oil from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Larry, you can't make it up. And of course, you know, I know Janet Yellen's one of your favorite. Um, public officials, but th- <laughs> this woman is so uninformed and out of touch with reality. So, to the Venezuela point, and and by the way, it's very related to Iran. It's this Venezuela is obviously not the military terrorist um, threat that Iran is, but they are an economic threat because they produce oil. They produce it a lot of it, and they produce it with filthy um, environmental standards. They produce it with poor labor standards, and then they compete with us in the global market, our very clean oil, and um, the the whole thing is nonsense. And then to your obvious laughable point that they make, that that, this is all because Maduro has promised to have free and fair elections. Who who believes that? Who really believes that? They can't believe that. I mean, it's inconceivable that they can believe that. And I can only say, I only think it's a cynical ploy uh, you know, to put more oil on the market, to keep the price of oil down. So they've always turned to their enemies when <laughs> they've had inflation problems. They'd they mm-hmm. be in the Biden administration. Really remarkable. First of all, let's not forget, Biden created inflation. Sorry, but it is they are these are his policies that have quashed American energy production, uh, made it more expensive to build everything, made it more expensive to 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 move everything to market. This is all supply-side craziness, as you know, 
and he's created this inflation problem. And, of course, chief among the inflation problems, but one, one of the two things that are not involved in or not considered, quote, core inflation, energy, um, he's driven up the highest by, by squashing American supply. So mm-hmm. what does he do when he gets in inflation trouble? He turns to Venezuela, Iran, Russia to produce more of the products we produce. And then, and he, then he turns to um, places in Asia and other places where he'll send that, that envoy of his um, and, and try to convince them not to buy American energy, Larry. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely crazy. So I, I, their hate, hatred for American energy, I, I swear, drives most of their geopolitical decisions. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, energy is a national security. It's economic security. Uh, They're obsessed by it. You're right. They're completely obsessed by it. You know, I was uh, on a task force, National Security Council task force, to try to help. Member Guaido was the president of the parliament, and he he was the duly elected president, and we tried to overturn Maduro. We we did not succeed. We couldn't get it together. Eventually, President Trump lost interest in it because it wasn't going anywhere. But my point here is Venezuela uh, is dominated by Cuba and Cuban communists, Cuban military, and particularly, Senator Kramer, the Cuban secret police, the secret police in Cuba. I mean, that uh, Maduro is a puppet of Cuba, essentially. That's exactly right. And and Cuba's a puppet, really, of, of, of Russia in many right. respects. Right. At the very least, they're all kindred spirits, right? So so when you talk, think about the geopolitics of the, of the era we're living in, you think about a President Trump who was firm, but also, you know, also very accessible to, to the bad actors. But they always knew he was firm, that he was coming from a position of strength, and America was his first priority. And, and we had a much safer world, even though, you're right, we, we didn't quite get the Maduro thing squared away and, and overturned, but, but not for lack of effort. Now comes along this appeasing Joe Biden, who loves to pat himself on the back because he's such a geopolitical genius, he's such a diplomat. Well, he's mm. a diplomat for sure because he goes and gives our enemy everything they want, and so they like him a lot. That's not what looks out for the, for America's interests, and you're, you're tying... The 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 the, uh, the lines between Cuba and Venezuela and Russia. These communists are more and more finding common ground. When at a time not that long ago, as you know, China and Russia were while they were like-minded in some respects. Obviously, they're not free market capitalists; they're communists, uh, centralized economies. Um, but they weren't peers. But now, because of this appeasement of this president. He's driving our enemies together in an alliance, and all the while not providing a lot of certainty or security hope for our allies. And it's really time to, to man up and, and get freedom-loving countries working together on things like these, these sanctions that we're talking about. Do you really want to put the type of sanctions on Iran that will, that will break them, that will bankrupt them? You need to you need to not only go at primary sanctions and secondary sanctions using the American dollar and, and America's economic might, but you need to do it in concert with other large economies like the European Union, Great Britain, like Canada, um, like you know, you know the, the the G seven, 
and and really escalate this thing up and break Iran because without Iran there's not Hamas there's not a Hezbollah there's not there aren't the Houthis and then you can get back to work on doing the thing that you all did so well and that is bringing it, more like-minded not exactly obviously but more like-minded Arab nations to the peace table normalizing relations like you did with the Abraham Accords like we're about to get done with Saudi Arabia and Israel. So, uh, in the Senate, is there any movement towards, um, I don't know, re-legislating, re-imposing economic sanctions on Iran? So, it's a great question because there there have been some efforts. There's a lot of legislation to do that and to, to, you know, to investigate further in in what all, all assets Iran has, not focusing just so narrowly on just energy, although energy is obviously a big one. Um, but in two occasions last week, Republican senators went to the floor with pretty basic Iranian sanctions legislation, re- refreezing some of their assets, um, re- requiring the uh, Treasury Department to look deeper into Iran's assets around the world, um, putting the squeeze on it, it, from every direction. And in both of those cases, those pieces of legislation were stopped. They were objected to by Democratic senators, which means we couldn't just vote on them at the moment on a voice vote or unanimous consent. And, of course, when that happens, that means you have to go through all the mechanics of the United States Senate process, which would take days and weeks and months, mm-hmm. especially since we have to fund the government yet, Larry. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't appear that, that there's a lot of bipartisan support for further sanctions. I think we have to keep that pressure on. But um, at this point, there doesn't seem to be. Now, there also is, as you know, and I'm sure we're probably going to get to it eventually in the show, but, you know, this this speech from the Oval Office and then the 105 or $106 billion uh, national security supplemental that the president put out, and the more we dig into it, the deeper idea we take, the less it is about real national security and the more it is about you know, kind of looking out for Ukraine, I'm not against that. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound like I'm against supporting Ukraine or, or supporting Israel. But the southern border stuff is just money to facilitate, you know, illegal immigration faster. And uh, and we really need to do much, much more on the national defense side for the United States of America. I say all that because next week there will be a hearing on that, and I think therein lies the moment when mm-hmm. we get, a, get a, a big package like this on the floor. Um, I'm inclined to support a package as long as it's really about national security, and I think we ought to throw some sanctions things into that package as well and just demonstrate solidarity for, for Israel and, more importantly, against Iran. All right. I'm with it. I'm, I'm all for it. But you're right about the southern border. My understanding is that money is essentially to expedite people crossing into the United States, not to close the border. And somebody's got to have a conversation, you know, split that off and have a conversation about that. Because he's trying to throw that into this omnibus security supplemental. I'm sorry. He's not stopping anybody with it down there. Whatever it is, $800,000, a billion, I don't know how much, $800 million, yeah. a billion. This is, you know, this is border control as babysitters. This is not stopping the border crossings. This just helps them. Anyway, I got to get out. Uh, Senator Kevin Kramer, as always, sir, thank you very much for your time, folks. Quick break on the other side. We've got Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We welcome to the show my dear friend, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. 
former National Security Advisor and now Chairman of American Global Strategies. Robert, thank you, love. Um, you're a former hostage negotiator, and I just wanted to hear you talk about this. Um, somebody asked Biden yesterday, he was leaving for the plane, uh, regarding the American hostages or hostages in general. Uh, should Israel slow down the uh, ground invasion in order to work through more hostage releases. And he said, yes, they should slow. But then the White House walked it back. And I just wonder what you're thinking about this. Well, the White House has a tradition of walking back President Biden's statements. Uh, (laughs) I'm always amused by that because I think if if you and I tried to walk back President Trump's statements, it wouldn't have lasted very long. But uh, (laughs) it's a different White House, different time. Uh, Look, the, the reality is, is that Hamas is a brutal terrorist organization. They're like ISIS. These are they're basically serial, serial killers. And you can imagine if John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy had your relative or your, your family member, you'd want the police to be doing everything they could to get them back. And, and that's why on the first night of the invasion, I recommended that we forward deploy our hostage rescue teams from the FBI and the, the military and get them to Israel to help the Israelis on hostage rescue. I, I don't know if that's been done or not. There's been mixed messages from the administration about whether our servicemen and women are forward to, to rescue our hostages. But unless you start putting pressure on these guys, uh, it's going to be very difficult to secure releases. So uh, there's certainly a role for diplomacy, and I understand Qatar and other governments potentially are involved in, in acting as media, mediators to try and bring our hostages home. And if that's happening, it's, that's good. But I think the, the Israelis need to keep strong pressure up on Hamas because otherwise we'll never get those people home. I mean, you know, you kind of think Hamas is playing us. You know, they, they elected two American gals uh, from Chicago. They released them. I mean, I think their plan is to stall the ground invasion. Absolutely, Larry. You're 100% right. And they're, they're playing the Israelis. And this is part of their playbook. This is why they took hostages, is to use them as human shields or use them as bargaining chips to delay the inevitable. But I think eventually... Time is going to run out for Hamas. Israel is going to have to go ahead and, and take them out root and branch. Israel cannot afford to live next to these serial killers. These are, I don't know, terrorists would be too complimentary of a word to, to call these people. They're not terrorists. They're just they're murderers and thugs and barbarians. Uh, watching them kill babies and slit babies' throats. I mean, this is, you, you don't even hear about ISIS doing these things. This is just this is horrific what's happened. And Israel's got to get rid of them so they can live in peace. You know, your other point on the show last night, um, you've had 30 or so, 32 Americans have been killed and another 10 or 15 taken hostage, and yet Joe Biden doesn't really talk about that. I mean, those are acts of war against the United States. Uh, I don't know what they're waiting for, the Bidens. I mean, these are other acts of war, by the way, uh, Iranian, uh, Iranian-sponsored terrorists are opening up fire on our ships in the Hormuz and the Straits of Hormuz and in the Mediterranean. I mean, at what point does the United States realize in the Biden administration that they're at war against the U.S.? Well, we've never seen in our lifetimes, Larry, a terrorist organization attack Americans, kill 30 Americans. And, and what are we doing? We're sending them humanitarian aid. I mean, the, the $100 million in humanitarian aid of U.S. taxpayer dollars is going to the Hamas government in in Gaza, after they killed 30 Americans and have and are continuing to hold Americans hostage, 
you think for a hundred million we got to we get our hostages back, but mm-hmm. uh, you know we, we've never seen anything like this. Look, the, the 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 desire to appease Iran, which is behind this. I mean, let's not make let's make no mistake about it. Hamas wouldn't shoot a BB gun off without Iranian approval, and, and it's an instrument of Iran, just like Hezbollah is. The desire of this administration, just like the Obama administration, to appease Iran, runs incredibly deep. Uh, you know, there, there's no real explanation for it. I, I, I guess they believe that they can buy Iran's friendship with billions of dollars in sanctions relief and billions of dollars in ransom payments. But it doesn't work. Iran's not that into us. They never have been. They want to destroy us. They hate our way of life. They hate our liberty and our values. And, and yet these guys continue to want to appease Iran. It's, it's really, and, and Iran responds in kind by killing Americans. Hmm. It's really unheard of. And finally, Robert, um, the ballistic missile sanctions expired uh, on Wednesday. Uh, I don't know. I still can't quite figure out. Uh, have they been renewed? Uh, is there a snapback provision? Can you just walk through that for a minute or so? Well, this is all part of the attempt to get back into the JCPOA with, with Iran, that America would turn a blind eye to sanctions to, to the Iranians selling oil, but also to their, their building up their military. And so the Iranians are now free to buy or sell ballistic missiles, drones, jet aircraft, uh, whatever they want, because this administration wouldn't take action. So we could have put massive sanctions on Iran, and we, we don't need the UN to do it. We can, use, we can put on unilateral sanctions and say, any country that trades with Iran, Russia or China included, will be kicked out of the SWIFT system. It won't be allowed to be involved in international banking. Hmm. Uh, we can take action against any bank that finances a, a, a military transaction. We don't need the UN to, to stop Iran from getting these weapons. We just need the will to do it. And that's that's why I said on your show the other night, Larry. Uh, you know, the, we, I never thought we'd look back at the Carter days as the good old days, but hmm. you know, Jimmy Carter at least had the integrity and the humility. That after the Russians invaded Afghanistan, after they had taken many other countries, Angola, Mozambique, Nicaragua, and Carter thought he could deal with the Russians, he finally realized when they invaded Afghanistan that we have to go back to peace or strength, and, and that his, his, his version of detente, his version of appeasement wouldn't work. And he said he was naive, and he was wrong. And he started the defense buildup that became the Reagan defense buildup that you were involved in, hmm. and it became the and, and he boycotted the Olympics in 1980. Hmm. And said, and, and said, I've had a change of heart. I was naive. I was wrong. I'm waiting for the Biden people, and maybe maybe we'll never see it, to do what Jimmy Carter did and come out and say, well, if we were wrong about Iran, we can no longer appease Iran. We have to fight Iran and, and protect American interests. And, and I hope that happens for the good of America. It's not a partisan issue. It's, it's for the good of our country. Well, you're 100% right. I'm waiting, too. I don't know. The whole world may be waiting. Robert O'Brien, thank you, my friend, former National Security Advisor, Chairman of American Global Strategies. We appreciate it. Folks, a quick break. And then John Carney, Breitbart, Economics and Finance, Business Digest. He'll come on. Let's update you on the economy. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Carney. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Here's my pal, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics, Finance, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. So we'll get a little economic update in the middle of this uh, war. But, um, uh, John Carney, the as you know, <laughs> the Atlanta Fed is predicting that the third quarter GDP, which will be reported out this coming week, 
could rise by more than 5% real GDP, more than 5%. Now, I haven't seen a lot written about that, but I think that's going to be a shocker. It is going to be a shocker. Um, a lot of people actually, when that when the number above 5% first came out of the Atlanta Fed a month and a half ago, people said, okay, you know, it's early on. These GDP now <laughs> casts can go up and down. But this thing is stuck. It has been, you know, I think the lowest it's come down to is 4.9. And instead of it coming down towards, you know, 2%, what you know, the kind of growth we had earlier in the year, what we've seen is all the big Wall Street banks have been ratcheting up their predictions for where growth's going to be. So, you know, they're all at four, between 4 and 5% now. So I think we're really looking at a what's going to be a shocking quarter in terms of uh, growth for the third quarter. And, John, I was just looking this morning, in your honor, of course, because I knew you were coming on, the Cleveland Fed now cast inflation. So they're looking for the third quarter, the PCE, personal consumption deflator, of 3%. So let's say that's close to the GDP deflator. So that would be 8% nominal GDP. I mean, that is some blowout for an economy that people thought was heading into recession. Sorry, it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, no, this is one of the, I think, the most incredible stories of the year. Uh, and a lot of people got it really wrong. They thought that we were headed to a recession, um, you know, as early as the first or second quarter of this year. They said when that didn't happen, they said surely it'll happen in the back half of the year. Instead, what we've seen is an acceleration of the economy. And, yeah, we're growing at a, you know, a nominal, you know, 8% or 9%, which is pretty incredible when, you know, when you look at a lot of the headwinds, including, um, you know, wars going on and, uh, you know, the Saudis doing their best to drive up the price of oil and Biden doing his best to make sure we can't do anything about that. <laughs> uh, it's pretty incredible that we're growing as fast as we are. Yeah, so, yeah. nominal GDP, 5% real, 3% inflation. This is after two years of monetary tightening. It's not supposed to be that way, John Carney. I mean, really, there's there's a disconnect here. I'm not sure how this gets resolved, and I don't don't know what the Fed's going to do. You you write convincingly that they're not going to raise their target rates. Okay, fine. You have faster real growth. Inflation has come down. Um, it's not that back to 2%. What are they going to do? Well, so they're, 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 they're facing a problem because, as you said, this isn't the way things are supposed to work. <laughs> uh, you know, all of the models say if we raise rates this quickly, we should have brought down nominal growth by a lot. Um, you know, we'll bring, down, we brought, we'll bring down inflation. We should see growth come down. I mean, let's just say that the Fed is right when it says that monetary policy is now restrictive. What do they think growth would be if it wasn't restricted, if it was just, you know, in the middle or even accommodated when we'd be growing 15 percent? This is a pretty crazy situation we're in. The Fed, I think, is perplexed. And what we saw last week from Governor Christopher Waller and from Chairman Jerome Powell was them starting to say, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Growth has come up a lot. Inflation has come down. We don't think these two things can continue. The, the, the title of Waller's speech was something's got to give. Mm. And so either uh, we're going to start to see growth fall 
you know, relatively swiftly, or we're going to see a reacceleration. I called it a second wave mm. of inflation, and the, and this is making the Fed nervous because you know not, nothing that we understand about economics, and I don't care what school you're coming from, says we should be growing this fast right now. Well, so if you want that, yeah. And now, I, my thought here is, if you are pursuing supply side policies, which Bidenomics is definitely not. But if you were, you would expect faster growth at lower inflation. Just think about that. That's right. That. This you know, is that's a, absolutely right. We had fast growth at low inflation in the past. It's not really that there's a contradiction. It's just that we're not pursuing the policies that tell us we should be able to achieve that. And the Fed knows this. So what they're saying is, uh, frankly, if that if growth continues at the pace it's going, it's going to reignite inflation and they're going to have to act to bring down growth. You and I hate to hear that because we do think the economy can grow without inflation, but not under these kind of policies. I do think one of the things that's happened is that the money that they poured into the economy, the, the American Rescue Act, that $1.9 trillion stimulus bill in the very beginning of the Biden administration, that then lasted because they kept the student loans on hold. They, they had the eviction moratoriums. Um, they kept the you know supersized unemployment benefits pouring money into the economy. I think that that fiscal stimulus has lasted a lot longer than people thought, and it's still driving growth right now. And that's one of the reasons we're having growth be so high. Yeah, all these Green New Deal subsidies uh, coming into the economy now, or is it yet still in front of us? It's, a lot of it is still in front of us. Some of it has already begun because people don't wait till the check is in the mail. You know, they see that the check is in the law and they start to build. You know, and so we, we, we've seen that there have been a construction boom in manufacturing plants mm. that are that is going to absorb this subsidy money. And so that so that also, by the way, is a driver of aggregate demand. It, it creates long before it's going to create any supply. And by the way, it's very questionable whether there's a whether there's demand for the supply that that will create, but it's creating demand for workers. It's creating demand for materials. So it's actually contributing to inflation. And ironically, a lot of that was passed under the Inflation Reduction Act. Are we going to have a defense spending boom, John Carney? We are. Look, we actually already have had a defense spending boom. If you look at the durable goods order numbers. Now, look, a lot of defense spending is kind of secret. You can't quite tell. But the qu- closest we have are the defense aspects on the, on, the, on the factory orders lines. And what we're seeing is that is ramped up a lot. And it looks like now it's going to ramp up even more. Biden has another $61 billion he's requested for Ukraine, tens of billions for Israel, um, so I do think we're going to have um, a kind of war Keynesianism going on uh, over the next year. And that's going to actually make the Fed's job of fighting inflation harder. Usually when you want to have a Keynesian spending boom, it's because the economy is not growing as fast as you want. We have 9%, 8% nominal growth. You don't pour more spending into that kind of economy. And, John, um didn't quite finish, but the 10-year note is uh, closing in on 5% and mortgage rates at 8%. What's that mean? Yeah, well, so look, the, the 10-year note is telling us that I think that the 
when the Fed is saying either growth will slow or growth will continue, I think the 10-year note is telling us, no, growth is going to continue very high unless the Fed actually slams on the brakes. That is, and, so, and the Fed right now seems very hesitant. I think the Fed is going to find that it needs to raise rates, probably won't be able to decide to do that, you know, go back to hiking until sometime in March or May of next year, which is very late. But they're, you know, now that they've signaled, no, we think we've done enough, they're going to be hesitant to backtrack on that. So it's going to take several months of data showing that the economy is growing faster than they can. And once we start hiking again, Larry, if we're already at 8% on the mortgage rates, we're going to 9 or 10% once they start hiking again. So we're going to have election year Fed tightening. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Holy cow. That's going to put the Fed in a very difficult position, as it always will, particularly with the Democratic White House, but whatever. Elizabeth Warren for Fed chairman. I can see it all coming. <laughs> All right. There's going to be it's it's a tough year for Joe Biden to be running for president because either inflation stays too high, growth crashes, or the Fed hikes interest rates through the roof. So it's going to be a tough year. All right, John Carney, author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Thank you, my friend. Folks, we're going to take a break and then uh, we're going to go to Israel. Talk to Caroline Glick, uh, senior editor of the Jewish News Syndicate. She's going to talk about. Why we're giving money to Hamas, I don't get it either. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. On the ground in Israel, we bring in Caroline Glick, senior contributing editor, Jewish News Syndicate, uh, Uh Caroline, thank you for this very much. Um, uh President Biden, I'm reading in the Wall Street Journal. I just want you to weigh in on this. Uh, Wall Street Journal has a long piece today about how popular Joe Biden is in Israel right now uh, because he is seen as a defender of Israel, Israel's right to exist, and, of course, Israel's military capabilities. Uh, Biden has very high poll numbers, and Benjamin Netanyahu has very low poll numbers. Do you see it that way? Is is Biden a, a big hero in Israel right now? Um, he is because of the way that the uh, media here was portraying his visit as an act of solidarity. But I think that as the uh, details are coming out about what actually transpired in his meetings here, that the enthusiasm of the Israeli people towards Biden is going down very quickly. So it would be interesting to see polling numbers in a week or two because – um, what Biden did was he conditioned American military support aid towards uh, to Israel, to the armaments that we need in order to fight it with our American platforms on us not achieving our war aims. Um, so I think uh, as this becomes clearer and a statement by our uh, defense minister uh, said that uh, – uh, Biden said that we're not allowed to attack Hezbollah because if we do, we're going to lose uh, American military uh, platforms and other ministers. Uh, I think also the prime minister, although I'm not sure, also have said the same about the uh, closure of Gaza. So um, today, 20 uh, trucks came into Gaza with so-called humanitarian assistance, but um, that's just an optical illusion. There's no such thing as uh, humanitarian assistance to 
an area that's controlled by Hamas. It's all resupply to Hamas. Everything is going to Hamas. So the United States' official position is that Israel has to resupply Hamas. And that means that we can't win the war. It means that we're going to lose. So that all the American munitions are are essentially uh, worthless because they're making us uh, uh, prosecute a war plan that has no chance of success. Well, I just figured from... Uh, from the past history here, uh, so-called humanitarian aid to Gaza is humanitarian aid to Hamas. I mean, it could be food, water, medical supplies. It could also be munitions. Those sure. trucks are those trucks are not inspected, Carolina. I think you've you said that on the TV show this week. So, mm-hmm. so, and the other point, as um, Biden was asked yesterday, as he was boarding Air Force One. Uh, if he wants Israel to hold off on the ground attack in order to negotiate for hostages. And he said yes. And then, of course, the White House later uh, backed off that. They took that back and said, well, he didn't hear the question. But me thinks they protest too much. Yeah, see, the thing is that the only humanitarian crisis in Gaza is the crisis of the 210 Israeli hostages that are being held, including 30 small children, Um that are being held hostage. Imagine being a two-year-old child being held hostage now for two weeks by Hamas. What's going through your mind? And without your parents, in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is a, this is the humanitarian crisis, and this is the atrocity. And uh, what the United States is now leading the the international community in demanding is that Israel set aside the needs of our hostages, which is to be freed and provide resupply to the hostage takers. So um, uh, that, I think, you know, is inhuman, not to mention not humanitarian. And that's really what we're facing. And, and it's very uh, obviously I'm alarmed by it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be, you know, talking a New York mile right now to your listeners about it. Caroline, uh, do you have any sense of when the ground invasion might begin? Um, well, that's the thing, is that that's why the siege is so important. Um, you have to understand that Hamas's fighters are all located right now in uh, in tunnels beneath the ground. And so all the resupply of water, of fuel, is going to generators that power that and their air supply and their running water in these tunnels. And um, they're set, they've set up essentially a death trap for our soldiers in Gaza. So... Um, the only way that Israel can win and can defeat these monsters is by forcing them aground. And the only way you can force them aground is by besieging Gaza and not letting in resupply to Hamas, not letting in fuel that's all going to go to the tunnels, not letting in water that's all going to go to the tunnels. So in a, in a very real sense, the, the siege has to be maintained long enough to get these these terrorists above ground, because obviously, you know, they're just going to be coming out of holes in the ground and killing our soldiers. And uh, to the extent that we go into the tunnels, it's just going to be a death trap because they're waiting for us. So, again, the only way that we can win is by besieging Gaza. And the Americans are saying that under no circumstance can you besiege Gaza. You have to resupply Hamas. And will the war cabinet, Danielle's war cabinet, Agree to the American conditions? Apparently, because we allowed in 20 truckloads of uh, supplies to Hamas this morning, and the defense minister said that we can't say no to the Americans because they've conditioned their military 
uh, aid, their military resupply on us uh, doing these things. So uh, the Americans are essentially saying, uh, you know, a nice army you got there. Be a shame if something happened to it because you don't have any weapons. So, I mean, that that's essentially what we're facing right now. So you asked me about Biden's popularity rating. So, yeah, because everybody was presenting him as this great champion. He came in. We stand with you. It's not like in the Holocaust where we betrayed you. We're with you now. But then uh, his actual policy uh, enable, uh, empowers Hamas and, and enfeebles us. The Israeli uh, air bombing, the precision air bombing, has... Mm-hmm. attempted to, and I think has closed many of the utilities uh, in these mm-hmm. tun- in the tunnel system. Now, that the air assault continues, does it not, Caroline? It is continuing. And again, you know, we need bunker buster bombs. You know, we need, we need bombs that can penetrate, and we have them, and we've been using them. And again, this was one of America's main conditions from the outset that Blinken was giving to our war cabinet two days before Biden arrived. Um, which was that um, they were going to give us bunker busters to go after the tunnels only if uh, we allowed resupply of Hamas. Mm. So, you know, that, that's the thing, is that if you're bombing things above ground, that's fine. But since most of the fighters and all of their leadership is below ground, you have mm. to get them above ground. And just uh, for a few moments, assess the threat from the north, from Hezbollah in the north in Lebanon. So that's the thing, is that if Hamas is a problem, Hezbollah is a problem 10 times larger. Mm. It's a ten, it, I mean, they have, Israel is about 25,000 square kilometers, and they have 150,000 uh, missiles pointing at Israel, which means that potentially they have six missiles per square kilometer of Israel. And, um, you know, their their fighters have been fighting in the jihad against the Americans, uh, since 2003, 2004 in Iraq, and then in Syria, um, so they're they're hardened, they're battle hardened veterans, and um, they have these missiles. And so the obvious play for Israel, which was clear all along, it was a, uh, a preemptive assault on their missile launchers and on their missiles to take out as many of the missiles as possible before. Uh, they start attacking us in earnest. And, you know, there are different views about whether that's that's uh, a play that we should make, because if we take out 50 percent, they still have 75,000 missiles, and that's going to overwhelm our air defenses, and how do we handle that? Um, so there are a lot of different thoughts about that, and our military, I'm sure, has been uh, scrambling, if they haven't figured it out already, how to handle it, because obviously no matter how good our missile defense is, it's not – uh, going to be able to handle that kind of incoming, not to mention if we get missiles coming in from Iran or Iraq or Yemen. Um, so we have we have a situation here which is very difficult. And what Gallant said was that he felt that it was more important to go to the north first because it's a it's a much more powerful threat and it's one that's much more dangerous and we have to take care of it and make that our our main our main effort and well, um, the Americans said nope you can't do that I know Michael Oren told me that Michael and foreign ambassador uh, to the US Israeli ambassador to the US he was on the show he said we should you should take off after Hezbollah first I don't know open up a second front I'm not sure anyway 
Caroline Glick, we appreciate it. Uh, senior contributing editor, Jewish News Syndicate. This business about humanitarian aid, folks, this is a bad deal for Israel. Always was and always will be. It's Hamas aid. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. We're going to break. Other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. Can't forget the stock market during the war period. And then we'll do some money in politics later on. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. Lots more coming. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can uh, get us, by the way, on radio. You can get us live on the Internet. Live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, throughout the world, throughout the solar system, and even in the Milky Way wherever that may be. And during the week, you can get us Fox Business, name the show's Cudloaf, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, well, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. How about that? We're going to do some stock market work for the next half hour or so. Stocks got hit. Got hit this past week. Uh, the Dow's off 540 points. NASDAQ down for over 400. The S&P 500 down over 100 points. Uh, market interest rates are rising. The Fed said they won't raise their own target rate. Interestingly, uh, oil prices, despite the Middle East crisis, oil prices holding at around 90 bucks, but gasoline prices have come down quite a bit. AAA nationwide. Go figure. Anyway, we've got our two stars, David Bonson, Bonson Group CIO, founder and managing partner and author of DividendCafe.com. And we have Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur. Gentlemen, welcome back. Jim Urio, um, I was looking at this rise of interest rates. Um, I'm sure you're all over that. But um, let me see if I get this right. Year to date, year to date, the 10-year Treasury is up a little over 100 basis points, called a full percent, 491 close Friday. But here's the thing that interests me. Of the 100 basis point rise in market rates, uh, most of it has been the real interest rate, the tips rate, up 88 basis points. The break-evens that are inflation expectations only up 17 basis points. So it's not an inflation play. It's a real growth play or a real return on capital play, which dovetails with the expectation, at least by the Atlanta Fed GDP now, that you're going to get a 5% GDP for the third quarter, which comes out this week. So, Jim Muriel, what do you make of all that? Stronger growth, less inflation, higher rates, but maybe higher rates for the right reasons, if such a thing is possible? No, see, I'm not reading it that way at all. I was hoping for you guys to talk me off the ledger because I'm reading it as the market telling us 
that the government is spending too much money and issuing too much debt to do it. When even when when Jay Powell spoke a couple of days ago and he said his the quotation was it's not about expectations of higher inflation and it's not about short term policy moves. I thought he was given a tacit admission that we were already at the limit of spending and the market was telling us that and then all of a sudden this thing happens in the Middle East and Israel, and we are going to have to borrow and spend a lot more money. And the one thing I will point to that scared me was those two auctions last week, particularly the 30-year auction. Well, we were going to try to auction that to auction off at 4.8, and the market said, no, we are not giving 4.8. We need 4.85. Now, you might think that's small, and it is small, but to me it was a, a bad sign that the market is beginning to say you cannot continue on this path of spending. To put a fine point on that, too, and then I'll shut up, is that – in the last 120 years, there's been 53 countries that have 130% debt-to-GDP ratio. 52 of them defaulted on the debt, and the last one was Japan. We are in that, and I think we're going to – there's a chance we're gravitating more toward Japan. So it's funny that – I'm so glad you said what you did because I'll think about it, but if it wasn't a sunny day uh, in Chicago area right here, I'd be climbing up the ledge, but that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> Well, it's pouring here in the New York area. <laughs> if that means anything or not. But David Bonson, it is interesting. You know, decomposing this rate rise, it's mostly real rates, which some, usually means it's a higher rate of return on capital. And, in fact, the economy is growing. And, in fact, we may get a blowout GDP number this uh, this week. Well, I think that what you said is extremely important, that tip spreads are up 17 basis points, which really destroys the argument that this is inflationary moves higher in yields. You can't have the yield go up 100 basis points and tip spreads only go up 17. Uh, This is real increase. But I do believe, Jim, that there's a counterfactual that's really hard to explain. And I'm as against the excessive government spending as anybody could be. But look, we ran the debt the debt from six trillion to twenty five trillion before bond yields cared at all. This is a byproduct of quantitative tightening that they right now have taken a trillion off the balance sheet, and there are no buyers at the long end of the bond uh, the yield curve except for people like us who care about rates. The foreign buyers, uh, China, Japan, are not there. They have more of a currency objective, and the central bank is not there, who actually had an objective of a lower yield, not not a higher one. So of the three potential buyers, the one who is there to pick up the slack at a long end of the curve are the one who care about longer yields. You factor that in with the fact that imports are down, and so China is not able to buy as much, and um, I think you have your explanation. Now, look, if tax receipts pick up a little you got to remember, Californians haven't even paid their tax bill yet. They kept expand. They, they, the whole country doesn't seem to know that no one in California had to file. There was no interest and no penalties until October 16th because of a couple rainstorms back in February. Then they expanded it again this week to November, and and so most people still did go ahead and file, but they're behind on tax receipts. That there's a little technical factor in things like that as well. But, no, I, I do not believe this inflationary story. And, Larry, I went to the lunch this week with Chairman Powell at the Economic Club New York. He was poo-pooing the Phillips curve on stage, saying <laughs> that sometimes the Phillips curve works and sometimes it doesn't, which is a weird definition of a model. 
and and said right now is one where it doesn't work. So I'm totally confused as to what they're doing. <laughs> well, okay, but um, it is interesting. Uh, I have another one, by the by, that uh, even though there's a Mideast war blow up, and Lord knows how that's going to play out. We'll see. But, uh, you know, we pray for Israel, but who knows how that's going to play out. Um, AAA gasoline prices have fallen back to $3.55. The world uh, wholesale price is only about $90. hasn't really moved since this uh, Hamas uh, barbarous invasion and so forth uh, of Israel. hasn't really moved. Meanwhile, gasoline prices are coming down, and that is counterinflationary. That is anti-inflationary. So it's a very peculiar situation, uh, Jim Urio. You know, if Biden were pursuing supply-side policies, lower tax rates, uh, minimal regulations, less government spending, I would say to you, you can have faster growth with lower inflation. But he's not. But nonetheless, we're getting faster uh, growth with lower inflation. Part, I, I challenge a little bit, too, because and the retail sales numbers were great. But those jobs numbers that masqueraded as great two weeks ago, I think if you look under the hood, are not as great. Um, when you talk about the oil thing, which is amazing to me, that they would just this week say, yeah, by the way, we're going to fill up the uh, SPR at 79. Now, if you've been trading as long as we all have, you know that if you have a big order to move, you don't tell the market exactly where you're going to do it at. That's just asinine to me. Why don't they hire one person who knows how to do this? So now every the joke on Twitter was, everybody, okay, I'm selling the 79 foot because uh, it's not going to go much below there. I do like to see the spread between gasoline and oil diverge a little bit, and the gasoline thing is, is a good story, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is we are seeing a little bit of lower prices too. But I, even when I look at oil, like, and I, every time I'm on the show for the last six months, it seems like oil's my big idea. And get, spoiler alert, it's going to be when we go over it at the end of the show again now, is because I think that is going to go higher. And I think when they start buying, uh, buying to fill the SPR, our friends, the Saudis and, well, not the Russians, obviously, but the Saudis might put the screws to us and not do anything to increase production at all. Well, of course, the Bidens have lifted the restraints on Venezuela and oil and gas. Oh, yeah, how about that? That was a great story, too. In the election year, let's get cheap oil any way we can. Let's make friends with bullies. Gosh, I just I want to bang my head against the wall sometimes. So, um, David Bonson, uh, are interest rates going to continue to rise in the Treasury market? And the corporate market, by the way, and the mortgage market. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a very difficult thing for someone like me who is so surprised that it's gotten this high to say when it's going to stop. But fortunately for me, I'm in pretty good company because the only people that are saying that they knew the 10-year would get to five are liars. And so it, 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 is, it just isn't true. It is, but look, I, I, do think, I do think that uh, the Fed realizes that the proxy funds rate, which is something the San Francisco Fed keeps, Okay, me, me and my firm keep uh, a lot of data points about what we think financial conditions are, but the Fed does it themselves, and they think the effective rate is over 7% right now. And that's on their website, okay? So they have 150 basis points of extra tightening in there. At some point, I believe that they realize this, this needs to come down. And it, a lot of people, I was with multiple bond managers in the city last week that think the Fed won't blink until labor data gets worse. 
And I just am not sure that that makes sense in 2024. I still think they're political animals in the end. I can't believe that Jay Powell will take the criticism in the end of, hey, we got the unemployment rate, get to 6 or 7%. I just don't believe it. And so I think they will end up blinking at some point in early 24. Why, by the way, does the San Francisco Fed think the effective rate is 7 well, they don't provide the granularity of their model, which is, you know, quite funny for a group that talks about transparency and forward guidance so much. But they tell us that it's 12 different ingredients, and it includes things like the long end of the curve, credit spreads, mortgage rates. So they're looking at a whole bunch of real-life factors, and they're doing some model to tell them that the effective conditions are uh, what they call a proxy funds rate, a little over 7%. And so that and it's look, the proxy rate is at some points run lower than the real effective rate. All of it kind of it doesn't that basically the Fed's lost control of the rate market. They have peanut butter and jelly in those ingredients. Well, yeah, I mean, they don't have consumer. Do they have mayonnaise? (laughs) Is mayonnaise in there? I need to know. Of course. The, the whole thing, the whole thing is that is the Fed right now bringing down consumer prices with a five percent Fed funds rate, and if the Fed funds rate was seven percent, I mean, I I think that the idea that the Fed is the key actor to control the price level is preposterous. They cannot do it. They haven't done it. All they can do is produce booms and busts in asset prices, and I I think both the right and the left needs to quit deifying the Fed. Amen. <laughs> This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, we're talking stocks with David Bonson of the Bonson Group, author of the DividendCafe.com, and Jim Urio of uh, TJM Institutional Services. Jim Urio, just as a quick point, um, you are in the restaurant business. uh, With respect to this potential blowout GDP number of 5% coming up this week, are you seeing that kind of... um, that kind of demand, consumer spending no. in your restaurants? No, we're not. Actually, it's gone. It's gone. Our restaurants have gone down a little bit. Some of that's seasonal too, uh, in October, but a little bit worse than last year. And our restaurant too is at a price point that I think is very would be very advantageous in this sort of market, like uh, you know affordable luxury. We're like an upscale pub, and mm. uh, we have seen a little bit of a downtick. Nothing to be very worrisome, but it's not like um, you know going gangbusters that it was six months ago. All right, I get it. Um, what's your so? Give us some stock market wisdom. We've kicked around interest rates and the Fed, and I don't think anybody is satisfied with the story. But um, what happens to the stock market? That's part of the that's part of the issue with the stock market. There's nobody satisfied with the story when there's volatility like this in the bond market. That's the first thing that happens is you get kind of scared, and then risk assets suffers like we see in the stocks. And then the second part of that is that the higher rates go up, the less attractive stocks look. You know, based on I actually one of my favorites is that Greenspan model about earnings yield versus you know investable yield in the Treasury growth, and that's starting to look less and less good for stocks. So I'm not I'm not particularly high on stocks. I also don't think it's the big one. Uh, you know, the market position usually and lack of respect for risk usually fuels the big big moves that we've seen in the past. And I don't think that I think that's about four thousand. And the things I like that I've liked for six months, I still like gold, oil oil-related stocks, and Bitcoin. And, again, I barely even know what Bitcoin is, but I've been watching the price pretty closely, and it seems to hold up 
in the sort of conditions I mm. think are going to happen. Gold did very well last week. Very well. Yeah. Back to, it's uh, heading back towards 2000. I'm just looking. You're right about Bitcoin. It's holding just less than 30,000. Um, year to date, it's up 79%. David Bonson. And I'm not one of those lunatic Bitcoin people, by the way, either. I just think if all this, this broad participation by the, you know, these blue blood institutional companies that have happened over the year has given some validity to it, and I think that that could fuel a good move. All right. Dave Bonson, what's, uh, what's your stock market take? Well, we're still very heavily weighted in energy. It's our number one sector. It has been for three years. Uh, we think midstream in particular is very undervalued. Um, there's a very contrarian idea here that a guy like President Biden is really good for the big cap names in mm. upstream and midstream energy because he doesn't let any new production happen, and it increases the value of incumbent assets. When there's no new pipelines, the people who already have pipelines are more important than the same thing upstream. The only companies that can afford to buy anybody else right now or do anything are Chevron and Exxon, and Exxon's going to own about a third of the Permian Basin here pretty quick. So we, we love the energy story. And then um, you're getting to a point, Larry, where consumer staples are pretty oversold. They've had a tough go here. Uh, I think that their margins are going to hold. Uh, they have a lot of pricing power. And then when volumes do come back next year, they're going to be in record profits. So we're, we have certain key consumer staple names we like. But Jim's right. Stocks are expensive. The market the, as an index, you have seven companies. They're trading 50 times earnings, and they're the entire return of the market. 439, 493 companies, rather, um, are, are flat on the year. So that it's not a good market when it's that top-heavy. As far as my friend Jim Irio and Bitcoin, I can only say <laughs> that nothing in the history of the world has ever ended well when nobody who owns something knows why the hell they own it. <laughs> David Bonson's too smart. I won't be on with him anymore. <laughs> you know, who said Bonson doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> That's very, very good. The aforementioned David Bonson. Terrific stuff. And my great pal, Jim Urio. Thanks, gentlemen. Folks, stick around. we got Money in Politics coming up with Steve Moore and Liz Peake. The world was a safer place under Donald Trump. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. (laughs) From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and the WABC radio host of More Money Welcome back, kids. I am reading The Hill, Liz Peek. The world was safer under Donald Trump. <laughs> there you have it. I, I put, I, I looked, I blinked, I looked again. There it was. The world was safer under Donald Trump, and the byline was Liz Peek. Uh, Liz, good work. Well, I, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear, right? Uh, uh, it's pretty hard to argue otherwise. When during Trump's presidency, we had basically no wars. We were not embroiled in any major conflicts. And I think the anecdote that I talk about in that piece really sticks with me, Larry. And, and it, it goes to carrots and sticks. People have talked about Biden being all carrots, no sticks. And I think we would all agree with that. 
when Trump first met President Xi uh, of China, our biggest adversary, over dinner at Mar-a-Lago with wives and a very elegant dinner, Trump accounts how uh, over a wonderful piece of chocolate cake, he mm-hmm. left the table, came back, and announced that we had basically bombed Syria in retaliation for Assad's poison gas attack on men, women, and children, which offended Trump to the point where he said to his military, what can we do? And this is what they suggested, bomb the airstrip from which those poison gas attacks had taken place. For a Chinese leader to have this disruptive, unexpected, undiplomatic coup over dinner was an incredible shock. And I thought it really sort of set the tone for Trump's presidency and certainly our encounters with China. I think from that moment on, the world knew that Trump would take decisive action when pushed to do it. And let's face it, he used the clout, military and financial, of the United States in many important ways, whether it was renegotiating trade agreements or setting red lines in terms of what terrorists could do, etc. I thought it was very impressive, and I don't think you can deny it. You can hate other things about Donald Trump, but the truth is, the world was in a better place when he was president. Well, listen, he bombed uh, ISIS to yep. smithereens. He took out al-Baghdadi. He took out Soleimani, the uh, big shot uh, from Iran. He actually enforced the Iranian sanctions, so they stopped, basically stopped, you know, hardly produced any more oil. Their foreign exchange reserves were at rock bottom. The country was basically... Uh, bankrupt, and then he countered that with the Abraham uh, Accords. So I think you're quite right. Um, not to speak of the chocolate cake, which I don't know to this day if she could finish his chocolate cake. I, I, I mean, I just think that was news. such a wonderful detail, right? <laughs> Over a delightful piece of chocolate cake. It's his favorite thing at Merrill. It's Trump's favorite dessert at Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> actually. And it is very, very good. But Steve Moore, I mean, you know, the world has blown up under Joe Biden. I had Walter Russell meet on uh, distinguished historian, foreign policy right. professor at mm-hmm. the top of the show, writing about this, how during the Biden years, uh, we've lost our deterrent, basically, and all the bad guys around the world are now taking advantage of the fact that we've lost our deterrent. And even now, you know, with this Israeli war and the whole blow up in the Middle East, uh, they let the ballistic missile sanctions on Iran expire. All right, but they, have, we have, they expired as of Wednesday, and uh, no, nothing has been put in to replace them, at least on a multilateral basis. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, how much things have deteriorated in um, a little less than three years under Joe Biden. There's no doubt about it. And, and it goes back to, I guess, uh, T.R., who said, carry a big stick. Mm. And, of course, Reagan, who said uh, that uh, weakness is provocative. And right now we're weak. I mean, I, I hate to say that about our great country, but let's face it, we're weak right now. Uh, why are we... A great report just came out by my friends at OpenTheBooks.com. Larry, I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, Biden has given a billion dollars to Palestine. Mm-hmm. A, a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Right. Why? Right. I mean, this is just so outrageous. By the way, you can buy a lot of rockets with a billion dollars. Yeah. And then, you know, you and I talked about this on your show the other night. I said uh, that I thought the amount of oil 
uh, exports by uh, Iran have risen by 50 billion. You said 80 billion. I, I don't know which one of us is right, but either way, that's a whole hell of a lot of money. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, Larry, but, you know, uh, Trump basically bankrupted the Iranians with mm-hmm. his drilling policies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've said it so many times on your show that this is not just bad. You know, when you declare war on American energy, you're not just declaring war on the American economy, you're declaring war you're making the world a much less uh, safe place. And I'll say it again. I, d- I do not believe that we would see tanks in Ukraine right now if Trump had still been president. I really mm-hmm. don't. I don't mm-hmm. think that Russia would have had the money. So it's it's a it's a really bad situation. I think that um, Liz has, has summarized it well. What did we have under Trump, whether you like the guy or not? You had peace and you had prosperity. Yeah, well, that's what we need. We need peace and prosperity. Well, that's one reason why, you know, this... Um uh, Harvard, Mark Penn's Harvard Caps Harris Bowl survey just came out. Mm-hmm. It's uh, registered voters, 2,100 registered voters. Uh, Trump 39, Biden 33, Kennedy 19, <laughs> 9% undecided. When you ask the undecideds who they'll break for, 42 Trump, 36 Biden. And if you take Kennedy out of the race, uh, Trump uh, 46, Biden 41. I mean, the polls show it. And I think this story, if anything, Biden's deterioration on foreign policy, Liz, is going to get worse. Uh, No matter how much he supports uh, Israel, which is a good thing, and I commend him for supporting Israel so far. He's done a good job. The fact is Iran has been let loose. And they appeased Iran, and they did not enforce the sanctions in Iran, uh, Janet Yellen notwithstanding. And yeah. by the by, let me just toss in a, a really stupid thing this past week. You probably saw it. Uh, the Bidens are uh, uh, weakening the sanctions on Venezuela, oil uh, and gas, which yeah. is absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Yeah, and and can I just say something about that Venezuela thing? I just (laughs) tweeted this, actually, because it just makes my blood boil. The Wall Street Journal, where I think the reporting kind of gets more and more left-leaning, reports that the uh, Biden White House has lifted sanctions on Venezuela in order to stabilize that country's economy, which admittedly (laughs) is in free fall, and over time to dissuade migrants from coming to the U.S. Not a word <laughs> about putting a lid on oil prices so that Joe Biden can get reelected. Right. I mean, give but, me a break. And, but, and in Liz, fact, Liz, you don't understand. They're going to have fair and open elections right now. Maduro yeah, has I, promised yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, honestly. And by the way, the elections don't have to happen until second half of next year when, by the way, we are, you know, probably done with our election. I mean, yeah. do they think we're that stupid? Yeah, well, the answer is probably yes. By the way, Venezuela is a communist country. Venezuela is run by the Cuban military and the Cuban secret police. I know a fair amount about that, having worked on it when I was in the government. I mean, it's just it just adds icing to the chocolate cake, except in reverse. I mean, yeah. they just to allow that to happen is quite remarkable. And still, they have not said a word about not only Iran's oil production, but their sales to China. You know, Trump cut off Trump's nose. Ships were interdicted, okay, if they were heading for China. That's the way he enforced those sanctions, and they have not mentioned that. And President Biden didn't mention it in his speech on Wednesday night. Well, I mean, because they don't want to go there. You know, why? So the question is, really, why don't they want to go there? 
Is it really fear that this military uh, offensive that is being conducted via Iranian pro- uh, proxies will spread? There's a pretty big piece in the Telegraph today about a very well-coordinated, organized uh, assault, effectively multi-pronged assault being carried out by Iranian proxies northwest, uh, north and south of uh, Israel and also west. I mean, this is happening. It is visible. I mean, we're seeing all these uh, rocket attacks from um, from uh, uh, the north of, of the country and also attacks from Yemen now. Yeah, this, this is really Yemen. this right. is really a bad thing. And it's not like all these terrorists just woke up one day and said, oh, gosh, let's go send some rockets towards Israel. This is being coordinated, funded and organized by Iran. And so the fact that we don't want to call them out. In his speech the other night, Biden says we will continue to hold them accountable. No, we don't. No, we won't. We're not doing anything to hold them accountable. Steve, you read uh, Walter Russell Mead in the journal? I had him on the yeah, show. Not... Uh, he, he's writing fabulous things about appeasing Iran. Yeah, really Iran good. is unappeasable. And well, Biden's, uh, yeah. that's the inconvenient fact. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to use that very term. Uh, you know, we we are back to Neville Chamberlain appeasement. And yeah. for those who <laughs> know their history, you know, that was one of the things that really uh, launched World War II was the appeasement in Europe. And where is it? When has it ever worked? It didn't work for Jimmy Carter. It didn't work, uh, you know, and it's never worked. And what Reagan knew, and I think Trump picked this up from Reagan, is that, you you know, the, all the foreign countries love Biden, you know, he'd go overseas to these United Nations meetings or the OECD or the Gang of Eight, and he'd pass out money, right? Yeah. And he and they, oh, we love Joe Biden; he's the greatest president. They didn't like Trump too much because, you know, the old adage is we want a president who is respected and feared, not yeah. loved. And we don't have that right now. And they are, you know, as Trump used to say, the rest of the world is laughing behind our back. Remember, he used to say that, Larry? Mm-hmm. And he was yeah. right. And yeah. they're laughing at us. Yeah. <laughs> Russia's laughing at us. Iran's laughing at us. All, the, all these countries don't, China. don't hire, don't, don't, they're not afraid of us. Yeah, China too. I mean, that's going to be yeah. a big problem. China's going to be a problem. No, the same thing, by the way, Larry, with the whole thing about green energy. It's like, Everything that China is doing is is fossil fuels, building coal plants. And, and then Biden, they say to Biden, oh, yeah, we're all in on the green energy. No, they're not. Why don't you watch what they do, not what they say? There you go. That's exactly right, by the by. All right, quick break. Liz Peek, Fox <laughs> News contributor. Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prospect. By the way, Steve Moore, quickly, how was the North Dakota governor? How was he? Oh, he was fabulous. In yeah. fact, when people listen to the show after yours, I have a great interview, a 10-minute interview with the great governor, uh, Doug Burgum of North Dakota. Why doesn't he endorse Trump? He could be the energy secretary. He, sh- he should be the energy or commerce secretary. Really, really a great. And, you know, what do, what do Trump and Burgum have in common? They're businessmen. Yes, <laughs> they understand right. the market. Yes. Yeah. Very good. All right. Quick break. Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money. Of more money following this show on many of these same stations. Uh, Steve Moore, we need a House speaker. Uh, I know. I know. I know. I, I don't, Larry, I am just, I'm so infuriated by the events of the last two weeks. And, I, you know, everything has gone wrong. Um, and 
here's where I am in my thinking. Let's bring back Kevin McCarthy. He was a good speaker. You know, look, nothing else has worked. I think Steve Police would have been a good speaker. I think Jordan would have been a speaker. Let's just go back to, to McCarthy. Here's the uh, here's a point that I think a lot of people are missing. McCarthy was a was a good, strong speaker. I didn't always agree with him, Larry, but I I thought he he did a very good job. But here's the other thing: people are forgetting about this. Kevin McCarthy raised a hundred million dollars for the party. We're, who who else can do that, Larry? You can't win these races. They have a four seat majority. We're going to lose twenty seats if we don't bring back someone like him. So let's have a campaign to bring back Kevin McCarthy, and you can talk to your friend uh, from Florida and maybe get him straightened out on this. But <laughs> yeah, we friend. need a strong speaker. Newt Gingrich was a strong speaker. I thought. Uh, you know, we've had. I thought Boehner was a pretty good speaker. I thought Paul, McCart- uh, Paul McCartney, Paul, Paul Ryan did a pretty good job as speaker mm-hmm. too. But you got to have somebody who's in charge, and to have a mamby pamby in there, that's not going to work. You know, Liz. Uh, I mean, they keep coming up with more candidates. There's a new list of candidates. I just, I don't see any of them. I mean, they're going to have to compromise. I, I was perfect. I agree with Steve. I was perfectly happy with Kevin McCarthy, uh, but. They've got very important work to do. And one of the key things there, this um, supplemental uh, security funding bill that Biden announced, you know, he's throwing everything in there. He's he's equating uh, Ukraine with Israel, which I think is a big mistake. Each of these things should be looked at separately, including uh, he wants about a billion dollars for the border, but it has nothing to do with closing the border. It has to do with expediting uh, people coming into the border. All of this stuff has to be worked on, but you can't do it because the House can't meet because they don't have a speaker. Yeah, it, it's just insufferable. I mean, they have got to figure this out. Um, I almost wonder. I, I agree with you. I thought Kevin McCarthy was doing a pretty good job of hurting the cats and honestly, what he came up against was a personal grievance by uh, Matt Getz. I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to. And unfortunately, Getz had a, a group of six that went along with him. I don't know if any of those minds can be changed. I'm, I'm, I was shocked by Nancy Mace being part of that group. I think a couple of the others also could be talked around. Uh, probably it would take Donald Trump himself to actually get those guys in the room and say, hey, we, we got to yeah. get this, you know, we got to get over this because the American people are looking at this and saying, why did I vote Republican? And boy, Larry, if we don't get a Republican in the White House next year and we don't take back the Senate and improve the margin in the House, I cannot imagine four more years yeah. of the leadership, lack of leadership we've seen and the horrific spending. Somebody actually has to stand up and be a grown-up right now. I would love to see Donald Trump use his enormous influence Hmm. and help get Kevin McCarthy back in that chair. It's a tough call, Steve Moore. You know, there has to be a compromise here. Um, I I just, I don't, of the names out there, I I don't see the compromise candidate. I just don't see it. And I don't even understand now, Steve, what is it that they're bickering over? (laughs) <laughs> Besides, pers- yeah. you know, and it's not like it's a left versus right issue. No, it's personalities. Yeah, it seems to be, which is the worst kind of politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the people they're talking about right now, like Patrick McHenry and Emma, I mean, they're fine. But I think you need, a, you know, what, what we were just talking about, you know, you need strength. You need, mm-hmm. you know, you need somebody who, who can, uh, you know, whip these guys into order. And and so, um 
I, I just wish that we could get back to where we were. McCarthy, you know, I, I keep coming back to him because I thought he, and I think you agree with me, Larry, I thought he negotiated a good deal with Biden on the mm-hmm. debt ceiling, mm-hmm. you know. And what are these guys so angry about? And what do they think that they're going to get that's that's better than, uh, than Kevin McCarthy? And by the way, he carried a lot of these people, even, even Liz, the six or seven voted against him. He helped carry those people over the goal line and get them elected. You know, what's really offensive is that they blame him for not getting the appropriations bills done on time. My understanding is the reason (laughs) he didn't is because they kept injecting into those bills things that never possibly could have gotten through the Senate and even couldn't get through the Republican vote. So it's really it came down to Matt Getz being peeved at McCarthy for personal reasons, I believe. uh, And they did this one idea I had, because maybe. As you point out, I don't think any of the people who've come forward, even Byron McDonald's and so forth, uh, really are going to be able to get any kind of coalition together, is going outside. Lee Zeldin has been mentioned. It would be very interesting right now to have a Jew become head, uh, become the Speaker mm-hmm. of the House. I think that would be a very clarifying moment uh, for mm-hmm. Republican leadership and a great contrast to what's going on in the Democratic Party. we got to remember, at some point, we are fighting the Democrats. We should right. not be fighting ourselves. And that's, that's kind of the true. big problem right now. So Speaking true. of Zeldin, the Democrats are the anti-Semitic poli- uh, party. That, exactly right. right. Exactly. I mean, you know, that's really something. The far left is, uh, they're dragging the Democrats into this incredible anti-Semitism on Israel. Yep. Just as bad as these college campuses. Steve Moore, this $106 billion supplemental you know, Biden's trying to do this uh, all in one bucket, and it should be broken out and looked at separately, shouldn't it? Of course. And, and you know, more and more, the Ukraine issue is very, very uh, controversial within our movement. I'm, I'm against it. I don't know mm. where you guys stand on it, but, I, you know, I think uh, how much that money actually even gets to Ukraine. And I also feel pretty strongly that, you know, what, what we what we do here – we got to pay for some of this stuff. We got to yeah. cut other government spending. I mean, well, let's get rid of the three hundred and eighty billion dollar green energy slush fund and use that money to defend Israel and the Ukraine. Amen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Dream on. <laughs> Think Biden will go for that? I mean, it's an it's an it's an omnibus bill. This supplemental. It's another omnibus bill. And that is just completely and wrong. And by the way, hundred million of that is is for quote humanitarian aid. Yes. Where's that going to go? It's going to go to this Hamas. <laughs> Hamas. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. It's a Hamas spending bill. Yeah. It's terrific stuff. And yeah, holding up the Israeli invasion. Holding up the Israeli invasion. Not good. All right, kids. We're going to have to leave it there. Liz Peak, thank you ever so much. Steve Moore, by the way, folks. WABC. More money coming up on many of these same stations. I'm Kudlow. We will see you next weekend. Thank you.